Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, power politics, testing Hillary Clinton's mettle on energy issues. Her experience, her track record would certainly indicate that she has all the qualities that it would take to stand up to big, powerful energy interests. However, her actions on the ground so far have not been as promising. Also, slow but steady wins the space race. In fact, Americans will soon have to hitch rides on Russian rockets. The fact that we are dependent on another nation's resources, that doesn't scare me. In fact, I think we should celebrate that interdependence because that may be what's required to fully realize our future in space. Space travel without the space shuttle. And digging deep into ancient lake mud to discover clues about climate change. We'll have these stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. Senator Hillary Clinton says she has big plans for tackling global warming and our addiction to fossil fuels. As part of our continuing coverage of green issues in the race for the White House, Living on Earth's Jeff Young investigates the Clinton record when it comes to taking on the energy industry. Early in her run for president, Senator Hillary Clinton told labor and environmental leaders about a cornerstone of her energy plan. Oil companies were going to have to become cleaner energy companies. Well, we have to tell the oil companies to play or pay, either invest more of their windfall profits in alternative energy development or pay into a strategic energy fund to get this country substantially off oil and onto cleaner and more secure forms of energy. Well, that went over well with the environmentalists. But about a year later, Clinton faced arguably the political battle of her life in a must-win primary race in Texas, a place where they're rather fond of drilling oil. Clinton campaign advisor Catherine Brown says Clinton did not back away from her big oil challenge. Hillary went to Houston and said to the oil companies that she wanted them to become clean energy companies. This is a woman who knows how to fight. Brown says that's the gutsy leadership Clinton also showed on the Senate's Environment Committee. She worked to lower diesel emissions, raise fuel economy, and fought against efforts to weaken environmental enforcement. I think Senator Clinton has an extremely long, strong record on environmental issues and a very clear vision of where she wants to take our country. But despite that record, grassroots activists in New England and Appalachia say Clinton took the wrong side in their energy and environment issues. First, New England. Three years ago, International Papers Mill in Ticonderoga, New York, wanted to lower its fuel costs by burning waste tires to fire its boilers. The mill is an important employer in upstate New York. But downwind, in Middlebury, Vermont, Joanne Caldwell wondered what burning tires might mean for her newborn child. Almost every kind of pollutant that they can measure is increased, you know, from heavy metals to dioxin. And these are all have a very, very bad impact on children's developing brains. Concerned residents joined public health advocates and local officials, Republican, Democratic, and Independent, to fight the tire burn. Senator Clinton, however, did not. 
She wrote a letter to state environmental regulators urging approval of the paper mill's plan to burn tires in a two-week test. Again, Joanne Caldwell. I remember when I saw the letter that she wrote, I just thought, isn't this the woman who said it takes a village to raise a child? International Paper ran its test, but it was halted after just a few days because the pollution exceeded the company's air permit. Brown, with the Clinton campaign, dismisses it all as a minor incident. This is a little silly. Senator Clinton supported a permit for a test. It was certainly not anything bigger than that. They're testing on us. It's not okay. We are not guinea pigs. And it felt really cynical to me that she just wanted those votes in upstate New York. In Appalachia, activists fighting damaging mining practices also say they see a gap between Clinton's rhetoric and record. Here was Clinton in a speech to environmentalists last year. Too often, people try to set the environment against the economy. There's really no contradiction. Because a clean energy agenda is a jobs agenda. It is certainly a major part in what I'm saying as I travel around the country. But that's not quite the message Senator Clinton had when she traveled to coal country last month. West Virginia Public Radio asked Clinton about mountaintop removal, the mining practice that flattens hilltops and dumps waste in streams. I think it's a difficult uh, question because of the conflict between the economic and environmental Uh, trade-offs that you have here. Clinton said she has no position on mountaintop removal. She emphasized her support for the continued use of coal and said the government should help pay for technology to capture coal's greenhouse gases and convert coal to a liquid fuel for transportation. It's imperative that we do everything we can to get to a technology that enables us to use clean coal, that uh, supports the subsidies for coal to liquids projects that uh, meet that uh, environmental standard that I think we can set. That was disappointing for Mary Ann Hitt, who leads Appalachian Voices, a regional group opposed to mountaintop removal mining. For Hitt, Clinton's coal comments point to something deeper about what sort of president she'd be. Well, Senator Clinton's intelligence, her experience, her track record would certainly indicate that she has all the qualities that it would take to stand up to big, powerful energy interests. However, her actions on the ground so far in West Virginia and Kentucky have not been as promising. And it definitely calls into question whether or not she would really be willing to stand up to those industries if she was the next president of the United States. Campaign advisor Brown says Clinton is taking a realistic view of an important energy source. You know, she understands the challenge that we face with coal, but coal right now represents half of our energy mix. And Senator Clinton isn't under the illusion that in one day we can move to fueling our economy entirely through alternative and renewable fuels. Brown says, look at the big picture and you see a senator who's earned a 90 percent positive rating from the League of Conservation Voters. Residents like Caldwell and Hitt say, look at the details, and you see someone who chose political convenience over principle. Either way you see it, it reflects something Clinton has often said during this campaign, that she may be the most famous person you don't really know. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Dangerous Assumptions is the ominous-sounding title of a commentary in the latest edition of the British journal Nature. The authors of the commentary charge that the Nobel Peace Prize-winning organization, the IPCC, has been using incorrect assumptions about climate change and seriously underestimates what it will take to save the Earth from catastrophe. 
Tom Wigley is one of the authors of Dangerous Assumptions. He's a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Professor, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you, Bruce. This is a pretty serious charge. What specifically are the dangerous assumptions the IPCC has been making? The assumptions are more in the presentation of information regarding what we might have to do to reduce the magnitude of global warming in the future. What IPCC has done is they haven't given the full picture of what those assumptions might be. I was surprised to read in your article that the assumption that the IPCC makes is that about three quarters of the um, carbon in the atmosphere is just going to simply spontaneously, automatically disappear. Yes, that's right. In the absence of climate policy, they're expecting large changes in progression towards using what are called carbon neutral sources of energy. IPCC essentially assumes that a lot of those things are going to happen just spontaneously. That's the key word. Well, how does carbon just spontaneously, automatically disappear anyhow? Well, in the past, energy efficiency has improved. If you look at the records over the last uh, number of decades, even over the last century, in terms of the emissions of carbon dioxide per unit of energy, we're improving the way we produce energy. But what is a little alarming is that if you look at just the last five to ten years, those changes have gone in the other direction. Now, if you make assumptions that the changes that occurred up to, say, the year 2000 are going to continue in the future, and you look at what's happened over the last five years or so, that change towards greater efficiency has not continued. China and India, you know, their economies have been going gangbusters. They're using lots of resources and lots of energy. Does that, how does that factor into this? Essentially, China and India are using 20th century technology in the 21st century. Now, you can't blame China and India for doing this because that is the cost-effective way of doing things. But if you just project ahead what's going on now in China and India, then the emissions from those countries are going to continue to increase for many decades. Well, what about targeting uh, limits on carbon dioxide, for example? You know, that's what governments have been doing. That's what the uh, Kyoto Protocol calls for. Will that clear up the problem? Well, the Kyoto Protocol assumes that there will be a succession of protocols that become increasingly stringent as the decades go by. Well, we're having trouble even abiding by the Kyoto Protocol, so the um, prospects for further and uh, stronger protocols in the future look rather bleak at the moment. Now, part of the problem is that the the Kyoto Protocol deals with a concept called targets and timetables. It essentially says we want to reduce the emissions of carbon dioxide by a certain amount globally by a certain time. Now, that's all very well, except that it doesn't really tell us how we're going to do it. What we suggest is that there needs to be more emphasis on developing the appropriate technology, the appropriate carbon neutral technology to reduce emissions. So don't just tell us where to go, tell us how to get there and legislate how to get there. Uh, What form of legislation would you suggest? What we need is policies that put a large amount of money into developing appropriate carbon neutral technologies, be it renewable energy, methods for storing carbon dioxide in the ground and so on. There is money being used and put towards uh, developing those sorts of technologies, but it's too small by orders of magnitude. We need to be putting, you know, 10 to 100 times more money into developing appropriate technologies to reduce the magnitude of global warming. So you're talking about something the size and scale of the Manhattan Project? 
Yes, indeed. That's exactly the term that's been used in a number of papers in the past. Well, why not just leave it up to industry? I mean, if there's gold or money to be made in them, thar hills, you know, let them go out and develop the technology. Yes, industry is very good at developing the technology, but if you look at the major innovations that have occurred over the 20th century, the initiation, the innovation, in almost all cases, comes from government research spending. Once the concepts are out there, then industry comes in and and makes a buck out of it. But they're not good at starting the ball rolling. But government money doesn't grow on trees. It comes out of my pocket. Yes, indeed. But then in the long run, you, your children, your grandchildren will benefit by having a planet that's not upset by what could be catastrophic changes in the climate or very large increases in sea level and so on. Tom Wigley is a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, and co-author of the article now appearing in the British journal Nature, Dangerous Assumptions. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Coming up, charging your cell phone with a pocket-sized windmill. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. America's fleet of reusable space shuttles has been serving the nation for over 30 years now, sending astronauts into low-Earth orbit. But in 2010, the remaining U.S. shuttles will make their final landings. The aging fleet is being retired, and it won't be until 2015 that new capsules and rockets will be ready to send Americans back into space. It's a five-year missile gap that has some worried that will be dependent on other nations to get us into orbit. But not Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City and our go-to guy on all things space. During this gap, that's right. We're going to have to be renting or buying a seat on the Russian Soyuz uh, space capsule. We've done it before, by the way, but now we'll have to do it. There'll be no other choices to get us to our own space station. Is there a danger in being dependent upon the Russians to provide you know, the transport to space? Well, there's always a danger if you don't control your means of transportation. However, you remember what the space station is called. It's called the International Space Station. And if you look at all of the visions of our future in space that have been put forth ever since people have been dreaming about space, it's always been imagined as an international effort. So the fact that we are dependent on another nation's resources, that doesn't scare me. In fact, I think we should celebrate that interdependence because that may be what's required to fully realize our future in space. What happens, though, if there's an international crisis? We, have to, we go toe-to-toe with the Russians, and we don't get our ride into space. That would be bad. That's correct. And we could be stranding astronauts up there on the space station. I'd like to think, however, this may be a little either politically naive or sort of wishful thinking. I'd like to think that when you have collaborations on that level, that it precludes political conflict. Because you say to yourselves, we are together up there in space. That overrides everything. It's been said that space 
is not about flag waving because, of course, a flag in space doesn't wave where there is, where there is no air. So that might be a lesson for all of us. Remember, they used to be talking about the missile gap back in the 60s. It seems like we've got a missile gap and, and we're losing the space race then. I don't think about it just that way because you have to ask, well, what's going on here in that five-year gap? What we're attempting to do is create a next-generation launch vehicle that will take our astronauts not only to low Earth orbit, which is where the space shuttle had been going and the space station is, but beyond Earth orbit to the moon, Mars, and beyond. And so I don't think of it as losing a space race, although we will be sort of underserved over that five-year period. Well, what about the next generation of manned vehicles for the United States? What is that going to look like? Well, it won't look like the shuttle because it doesn't have the same requirements as the shuttle. This new suite of launch vehicles, which will get us to Earth orbit and beyond, uh, have separated the astronauts from the cargo. So you send the cargo up first, and then you send the astronauts up next, and they redock with the cargo. And in that way, you don't need the same rating on the launch vehicle for the cargo that you would require for the protection of the astronauts. It's not only safer, it's more efficient because you can tune the vehicles for exactly their purpose. You know, what's fascinating is that in my my little cell phone that I've got in my hand right here, I've got more computing power than they had to land the, the Apollo on the moon. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't quite as bad as like the Flintstones where they're <laughs> running their feet along the ground. Yeah, but dab do. But it was mostly mechanical operations, yes, and there was some computing power. But that ought to tell you what is possible when we equipped these uh, spacecraft with modern computing and modern uh, hardware and software. So I, I have very high ambitions for what our future in space can bring. And by the way, people talk, well, why are we spending billions up there when we could be spending it down here? And then you realize that when we spent billions up there, it inspired an entire generation of Americans to become scientists and engineers, which enabled our entire technological revolution that we now all take for granted. It has an effect on the ambitions of an entire nation. There are a number of private companies which have been investigating and investing and experimenting with manned vehicles. How far along are they? That's an excellent question, and they've made some progress. Uh, the X Prize is sort of the most visible exponent of this effort to provide prize money for entrepreneurs who satisfy certain checkpoints, certain certain milestones of advances in rocketry, just as there were prizes for advances in aviation. We remember Lindbergh as being a hero for being the first to fly across the Atlantic solo. But if you interviewed him at the time and say, well, why did you do it? His answer wasn't, oh, because it was there or it was because I wanted the prize money. <laughs> okay. Show me the money. Prize, show me the money. And we don't remember it that way but because we romanticize the act. But in fact, we've known for a long time that prize money stimulates innovation and creativity. The moment you get the capital markets involved, then you stimulate innovation in ways that would not normally happen in a government-funded project. And when you do so, the hope is that you can get the price of going to space down to something that maybe people can afford that might have otherwise just taken a family trip to Alaska. Uh, you get it down into sort of the vacation budget. Uh, take a moon tour or a tour of the hills and valleys of Mars. Well, that, of course, was some of the vision of uh, famous science fiction writer Arthur Clarke, who recently died, and his concept of the space elevator, this idea that you could tether, uh, well, basically have an elevator shaft going to, to the orbit. 
that's an interesting concept. The way it works is we know that there's an orbit, a distance above Earth where you can place an orbiting spacecraft, where the time it takes to go around the Earth is the same as the time it takes Earth to rotate. And therefore, it'll appear to just hover over one location on Earth. And so you can imagine a platform up there. This is 22,500 miles up. A platform appearing to hover over Earth, and it lowers a cable down to Earth's surface, and you just get in an elevator and glide up. It would take a while, but it would be by far the cheapest way to get into orbit. And so the concept of the space elevator is to lower the cost of access to space. That's the only point of it. It's got no other utility at all, other than it might be kind of cool to watch Earth uh, shrink down as you ascend from it. Mm -hmm. Next up, uh, women's lingerie, toys, menswear, the moon. (laughs) There you go. And plus, there's a a friend of mine who's in the industry who composes music, and she composed a a CD called Space Elevator Music. (laughs) So... Because we've got elevator music in buildings. You might as well have one as you're going to space. So I look forward to that one being used. Well, Dr. Tyson, it's always a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson is director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City and author of the book, Death by Black Hole and Other Cosmic Quandaries. power industry is picking up energy in the United States. Last year, we installed enough wind generators to power one and a half million American homes. Most of that comes from large wind farms. Less than 1% is generated by small wind turbines that you can find in backyards, farms, even on the roofs of buildings. The problem with small wind generators is that they cost big money. But now a Nevada company has come out with a cheaper, more efficient model that updates an old design. Spectrum Radio's Prachi Patel-Pred has our story. On a field in Spanish Fork, Utah, about 50 miles south of Salt Lake City, a wind turbine spins furiously. If you're picturing something that looks like a propeller, think again. This silver turbine looks more like a tall and slender egg beater. It has three long vertical blades that spin around a shaft. It's 30 feet tall and 4 feet wide. The concept isn't new. Vertical axis turbines have been around since the late 1920s. But they never took off like the popular three-blade propeller type turbines because they were not very efficient. Now they're making a comeback because of better materials and designs, and a push for clean energy. Trudy Forsyth is a researcher with the Department of Energy's National Wind Technology Center. As the U.S. market expands because of incentive programs that exist in states or in uh, different utility sectors, more and more people are interested in designing the turbine of the future. Many of them are convinced that a vertical axis turbine is the answer to that. A small Reno, Nevada startup company called Mariah Power is certainly convinced. It's testing a vertical axis turbine in Utah with an independent engineering firm. They plan to start selling the turbine this year for about $5,000, including installation. 
Most small wind turbines cost at least twice that. Mariah Power CEO Mike Hess says that the turbine generates affordable electricity. With a 20-year life, it gives you an average cost of electricity of about 12.4 cents per kilowatt hour, which is the same as the average cost of power from uh, utilities across the United States today. That price is for average wind speeds of 12 miles per hour. Many other small turbines can compete with utility prices, but Mariah's is the first vertical axis design that is competitive with utilities. In fact, the last American company that tried to sell electricity from vertical axis turbines went bankrupt in 1997. So Hess is taking a gamble, one that he thinks might pay off. We have about 2,000 units that have already been reserved by people and, and, and ordered, so to speak. Hess believes vertical axis designs are better for backyards than horizontal axis turbines. He says they're quieter, don't take up much space, and are safer for bats and birds because they work at lower speeds. These pluses have been overshadowed in the past for several reasons, says energy consultant Mig Segrio. Number one, uh, the centrifugal forces on a vertical axis turbine are far greater on the blades because of the blade orientation and configuration than they are on a standard three-blade windmill. The second of all, those forces increase the wear and tear and therefore the maintenance on the wind turbine, which means increasing cost. Third of all, the airfoils themselves, the collector themselves, uh, a, a horizontal axis turbine turns out to be a slightly more efficient, maybe 5% more efficient, maybe a little bit more than that. These are the reasons why most turbine makers are pursuing traditional propeller-type designs. But newer materials and designs have addressed past problems. Turbine blades are typically made of steel and aluminum alloys, which add weight. Mariah used light and strong aircraft-grade aluminum. And they've spent three years tweaking their design to get one that captures as much energy from wind as possible. First, they designed a generator that is 98% efficient. Then they developed a turbine shape that drives the generator even at low wind speeds. Field tests in Utah and at the National Wind Technology Center will tell whether the technology works as well as Mariah claims it does. Mixigrio says Mariah is the only vertical axis turbine manufacturer doing such testing. For now, their tests have won him over. They are going through the effort and the expense and the time that's involved in actually taking a look at the turbine, having an independent evaluator in an engineering firm help them with the development, and doing the testing. And for that reason alone, I think they're worth consideration. Mariah is expecting final results from the Utah tests any time now. If all goes well, the turbine might be ready to go up in your backyard before this summer. For Living on Earth, I'm Prachi Patel-Pred. Our story on vertical wind turbines comes to us courtesy of Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum, the magazine of technology insiders. Well, from an egg beater turbine in your backyard to a windmill in your pocket. Maybe your kitchen's like mine. On the counter is a tangle of wires plugged into my digital devices. My cell phones, MP3 players, PDAs, cameras, you know, the usual. And per usual, I often forget to plug them in. So when I need them most, they're dead as digital doornails. But now there's a device that promises to keep you charged in an environmentally sustainable way. It's a windmill and solar collector that fits in your pocket. It's called the High Mini, and the gadget is the brainchild of Arthur Wong. Arthur, thanks for stopping by Living on Earth. Thank you.
So we've got the uh, high mini spread out on this desk. Let's go through it. How does it work? It's basically a miniaturized uh, hybrid system. It allows you to use different type of green power um, to charge the device. The power bank itself uh, actually has a built-in wind uh, power generator. It also has additional input outlet allow you to plug in the solar panels, and you can string them into an array and increase the capacity. So I've got a solar panel that I can plug into this windmill device, exactly. and inside that is a battery I can charge. Yes, and you can store the power, uh, output it with USB and to all your other devices. Now, how much wind or how long do I have to charge this in order to charge my MP3 player? For example, a 20 minutes wind charge will probably give you around like 30 minutes worth of uh, MP3 playtime. If you include it in your daily routine, for example, you're biking to work, then you lay out your solar panels uh, on your desk while you're next to the window, you actually get quite a lot of um, green energy input into the system. What's this thing here? This is a hand crank generator, which it's able to plug into high mini, and then uh, you are able to turn it, and then using your sheer hand power, yeah. So how long do I have to crank this before I get a charge for my cell phone? Surprisingly, the hand crank, actually you're turning on the wrong direction. Oh. Pretty much one minute of turning is one minute of talk time. You know, what this has given me is a greater appreciation of just what does come out of the wall and how much energy it takes to get that power to my wall. Yeah, definitely. Majority of the carbon emission is generated by us generating energy. And so this is what this device is all about. It's about an attitude. How did you come up with this? The original idea was actually conceived when I was really frustrated as a real estate developer. My original training is an architect. People always ask for green, uh, but they really don't understand it. They really look at green as a label that they just stick onto a building. And now I think maybe it's, it's time to think of something much smaller. Now, what is this thing? It's kind of heavy, too. What is this? I don't have to carry this, do I? Yeah, um, that's actually a bicycle wheel. Uh, It's like a bike hub, um, which is actually generating electricity while bicycle is moving. So that also plugs into high mini, and it also charges the internal battery. I basically am turning myself into a power generating source. That's exactly what we're trying to do. You're not just a power generating source. You are also a virus, for example, to contaminate others that you can be actively generating electricity on your daily routine. You know, you've, you could be walking around with your high mini. You, know, you can have your windmill and your solar collector and you could have your armband and you'd be making a fashion statement. You should have a, a fashion show. Uh, we're soon going to have a blog that's on our website and we're going to have dog fashion show. And we're going to have dog harness with high mini fasten on top of it. So you could walk your dog and charge your cell phone at the exactly. same time? Exactly. Let them run in the park and then they're actually charging electricity. Arthur Wong is the CEO of MiniWiz, which makes the high mini. Arthur, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much, Bruce. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. And you can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. 
And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Just ahead, searching for seeds of the Ice Age in the bottom of ancient lakes. You can get 100,000 pollen grains in a cubic centimetre of lake mud. It's a time machine. I I go around calling it my time machine. Have time machine, we'll travel. And (laughs) that's my my motto. 40 years of travelling back in time. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. April 22nd is Earth Day. It's when we commemorate the birth of the modern environmental movement. In recognition throughout the month of April, Living on Earth is rebroadcasting and updating some of our favorite award-winning stories from years past. Today we begin with a piece from 1995 by producer Joe Richmond. The story you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent. Dateline New York City, where all the news that's fit to print is also worth stealing. In the mid-1990s, a nationwide shortage of newsprint sends the price of recycled paper soaring, tempting nefarious criminals interested in yesterday's news. And not just for reading, if you get my drift. Our intrepid reporter, Joe Richmond, took to the mean streets and curbs with New York City's finest, the Sanitation Police, in a story that won a silver award from the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. Bravo, Officer William Martinez is driving through Manhattan in an unmarked Chevrolet 4x4 with a Greenpeace sticker on the dashboard. He's undercover, sort of, and hot on the trail of a suspect. I'm going up the block. I think I see something up the block, so make it right here. Martinez checks in with his partner, who's in another vehicle, and then heads down 2nd Avenue towards the van he spotted. Martinez stays a half block or so behind the van and changes lanes periodically so it won't look like he's following. He thinks there are newspapers in the van, but to make an arrest, Martinez must catch the driver in the act, snatching newspaper bundles that are supposed to belong to the city. He's going to get snagged. But after a few blocks, the van driver, realizing he's being tailed, speeds off through a yellow light. Better to let him go and catch him another day, says Officer Martinez. The New York Sanitation Police are not your typical cops. All the officers are former trash collectors, and until recently, they concentrated mostly on what William Martinez calls sanitary crimes. Littering. Uncovered receptacles, dirty sidewalks, noxious liquids, which is urinating, unleashed dogs. But now the job has changed. In the last few months, as the value of paper has skyrocketed, Martinez and his partner William Lugo have had their hands full with the paper bandits. And this night, in particular, has just become very busy. Officers Martinez and Lugo pull up behind a white van with Virginia license plates. The van is parked next to a pile of bundled newspapers, the driver has been caught red-handed. You do this often? So why'd you start tonight? I came up from Virginia. My friend said that they pay good money for paper. He said you can go and take it. 
I said, okay, I'm there. You just came from Virginia just to do this? The guy told me if I fill up a van, he said it gives me 200 bucks to fill up a van. I said, okay, I'm there. A loaded van, 200 bucks? That's what he said. And I said, I'm there. I'll do three, four a night. And you just came from Virginia just to do this? Yes. All right. Just I'll put the paper back. That's not I the don't, point. I won't take it. We're going to issue uh, you several summons. We're going to have to just take you down to the precinct just to make sure. Going to arrest me? Park your vehicle. For, for taking the paper? Yeah. It's against the law in New York City to take anything the residents put out on the curbside city property. It belongs to the sanitation department. Put your hands together. It is illegal to take refuse off the street in New York City. Of course, it's a law that until recently was not strictly enforced. In the last few months, officers Martinez and Lugo have made about one or two arrests a week on average. But this is not an average night. On the way to the police station, Officer Lugo spots another suspicious van and three more paper thieves. Put the cigarette down, put the cigarette down, let's smoke it. I have three perps and another van. I have four perps over there and two vans. I need some assistance. The sanitation police aren't pros at collaring criminals the way the NYPD is. And on a busy night, things can get a little confusing. Two more sanitation cops arrive on the scene for backup but there still aren't enough officers to drive all the police cars and the two confiscated vans back to the police precinct. So they have to rely, in this case, on the nearest public radio reporter. Right now, I'm driving a police car. And we're going up a one-way street. That's cool. The whole scene might seem a little silly. Handcuffs, sirens, police backup, all to catch people stealing discarded newspapers. Just a year ago, the city was paying recyclers $25 a ton to take the paper. But now, fetching up to $60 a ton, old newspapers are a source of income. And the sanitation department estimates that unless they clamp down on paper thieves, the city could lose up to $4 million a year. Of course, enforcement is expensive, too. Right now, it might not be worth spending millions on overtime to protect a bunch of old sports sections and New York Times book reviews. But Sanitation Department Commissioner John Doherty says that newspapers and other recyclables are a growing resource for cities like New York, one that is sure to pay off down the road. And Doherty says it's important to send a message now to any would-be street corner entrepreneurs. We're really running them through the system as a deterrent. I mean, we could issue a summons out in the street. That would be very nice. But that doesn't always do it. You have to let people know, especially in the beginning when you want to stop something like that, that we're very serious about it, that we are going to arrest you. We are going to put you through the system. Uh, and you may stay in a holding pen uh, overnight uh, until you're released in the morning. But I think uh, once people see that happening, they're not going to be going out there and... Um, picking through the garbage and taking the newspapers. Thanks, guy. It's 3 a.m. by the time sanitation officers Martinez and Lugo get to the police station with their paper perps. Most likely, the four offenders will just end up with stiff fines. But in the meantime, they'll be frisked and held overnight for booking, along with all the evening's drunks and drug dealers. Officer Lugo says he admits to feeling a little sorry for these guys. I know they didn't commit a murder or anything. They just committed petty larceny. 
if I could make it a little easier for them, I'll speak to them nicely. I'm not going to harass them and give them a hard time. I'm going to treat them like a gentleman, and I'm going to treat them the right way. But this is what our job is, and this is what I'm going to do. As Officer Lugo leads the four paper thieves to a holding cell, a precinct cop looks up and says, what's this? Another officer standing in the corner says quietly, you don't want to know. For Living on Earth, I'm Joe Richman in New York. Go to sleep. We got a long time. That was our 1995 award-winning story, The Black Market in Newsprint. Now for an update, we turn to John Doherty, who you heard in the story and is still head of New York City's Department of Sanitation. Commissioner Doherty, thanks for joining me. You're quite welcome, Bruce. So are the sanitation police still patrolling the curbs of New York? We haven't been doing the arrests anymore. Uh, we had a little problem with that, but uh, we got that straightened out. Now we have a good, solid legislation on the books that allows us to give out a $2,000 fine when we catch somebody stealing either paper or, re- or other recyclables uh, from the curb, and uh, we impound their vehicles. Boy, who says grime pays? <laughs> Well, a lot of people, uh, like you heard in the old tape from 95, people didn't realize what they were doing wrong. Uh, At that time, uh, the paper market was uh, really high, and it was a good buck to be made out there, and that's what uh, drove these people to go out and take the uh, paper off the street to make a couple of bucks. But then the paper market fell, and it's a very uh, cyclical market. It has its highs and its lows, and the market right now is is high again, uh, not as high as it was in 95, but the commodity that's the highest right now is the metal, and uh, we recycle plastic, uh, metal, and glass in New York City, and a lot of metal is put out at the curb, and people are looking to take that these days, and they are taking it. So like zinc, copper, that kind of thing? Copper is probably uh, has the highest market right now, and when you put a refrigerator or an air conditioner out in the street, there's copper tubing in there that at times uh, some of these people would just rip out the tubing and, and let the rest of the appliance go. But today, even the regular metal on some of these, even though some appliances have a lot of plastic on it, uh, we find that they are taking whole refrigerators and whole washing machines, and they're just disappearing off the streets on us. So if I was to grab some old chairs off the curb, um, you know, because somebody put them out on the street, would I wind up in the slammer? No, we're not looking for that. We realize that there, you know, there are homeless people around the city that go by and they, they lift open the uh, cover on your recycling can and they'll pick out the aluminum cans and bring them to the supermarket and putting in a machine and get their nickels out. So no, no, we're not going after them. And we do know there's other people, particularly around college areas where young people, you know, maybe moved into their dorms and they see a nice chair out there. So, oh, you know, that chair at my desk is kind of broken. Let me grab this one. No, we don't bother them. Uh, we're after the people that are making a business out of it. You say you're not arresting people anymore. Now, we had to get out of that. The uh, the judges kind of frowned on it, and we had some uh, legal issues there, but it was only minor. I mean, it suited the purpose at the time. We had to send a very strong signal out uh, to people that we're not going to tolerate people stealing paper or taking paper from the curb because uh, we have a job to do here, and uh, we need that, and we get revenue off it. So we wanted to stop, and we sent out a strong signal uh, by going through the arrest and doing some press clippings and have photographers with us when we'd arrest the guy and put the handcuffs on him. Yeah, I hope you're recycling (laughs) your press clippings. (laughs) Oh, definitely. (laughs) Well, Commissioner, it's been a great pleasure. I want to thank you very much. Okay, Bruce, thank you. John Darty is the Commissioner of the Department of Sanitation for the City of New York.
Why are areas by the equator so richly diverse in wildlife when places in northern climes are so species poor? Well, ecologist Paul Colinvo spent 40 years investigating that question, analyzing core samples of sediment from ancient lakes for clues. Pollen analysis in the Amazon was harder even than finding the ancient lakes. There are 80,000 species of plants known in the Amazon, 80,000 kinds of pollen. Paul Colombo's search for signs of climate change are chronicled in his new book, Amazon Expeditions, My Quest for the Ice Age Equator. It's sort of Linnaeus meets Indiana Jones. I asked Colin, though, why anyone would spend decades trekking along the equator in search of ancient lakes. My first and original reason is that it might help us understand why there are so many species there. The first and, uh, and in those days still living hypothesis to explain this was that the Ice Ages did it by extincting everything in the north and uh, the equator escaped. And it was nice and warm and everything went on as usual and been gathering species forever. And, uh, but we didn't know what it was like at the equator in the Ice Age. We just thought it was. Not until you got there. Now, there was something called the Haffer Hypothesis. Yes. Did I pronounce that correctly? That's correct. So his hypothesis says that things dried out and that grasses populated the area. Savannas. And that led to the speciation, the evolution yes, of different species. because there were little patches of forest left where, by some curious accident, he never explained that. It made, the rain kept, kept going. And they were an archipelago of refugia. And you found, over your 40 years, that, that in fact, not true. Not true. No grasses. No grasses. And the way you did that is by doing these coarse samples in ancient lakes, looking for pollen. That is correct, looking for pollen. Because once you've got the pollen uh, and, and a date, you see, I, I had to get a date of 20,000 years, for instance, because that was the height of the Ice Age. Well, that's easy. You do it with radiocarbon. So you say, this bit of mud is Ice Age mud, and you can extract the pollen from it, Then the pollen grains are perfectly preserved. You can get 100,000 pollen grains in a cubic centimeter of lake mud. It's a time machine. I, I go around calling it my time machine. I, I um, have time machine, will travel. Um, <laughs> that's my, my motto. And uh, when the Haffer hypothesis came out, that was perfect for uh, have time machine, will travel. Because as a hypothesis, it was beautiful. It predicted a t something testable. It said that if you had a time machine and you went to the Amazon in the Ice Ages with your time machine, you would find savannah and no forest. Well, I had a time machine which would do just that with its pollen in Lake Mud. And I did just that. And um, you went bingo. Around, and you went around taking these core samples? Yes. How do you find an ancient lake? You'd think that people would know those. Well, I did it the hard way. In fact, I have a conceit that this was the last of the old-time explorers. Now, now you do it with um, Google Earth and things like that and uh, GPS systems. And um, I did it by um, 
talking to the locals, getting air photographs from the military whenever they'd done it, which is not wasn't all that often. Um, but then you've got to get to them, and you can't really know um, just by looking at them. But I quickly developed a criterion. They must be above the rivers. Why is that? Because then the river has never come in and swashed them out. You went to the Galapagos. I went to the Galapagos. 1960s, 66. 1966. Mm-hmm. Um, this was before tourism. You discovered an ancient lake. Yes, which was unknown to geography, and it's a beautiful freshwater lake. It's um, uh, I did the chemistry of its water. It's the same as rainwater. Just lovely. You can drink it straight out. And it's sitting on top of a mountain under permanent cloud. In the Galapagos, you also discovered... A plant. Oh, yes. It's named after you. Passiflora colinvoei, yes. It's, it's one that Darwin missed. <laughs> but I think it's very interesting that it's a passion flower because you're a passionate man. Well, it's kind, yes. But I'm saying, how many other people do you know would spend 40 years trekking through the equatorial regions in search of ancient lakes and pollen from an ice age? Neurontony. Your work shows that the core samples that you've collected over these many years don't show an increase in grass pollen during the Ice Age. Correct. So now after the end of of a 40-year career investigating this, trekking through thick and thin, aren't you a little, well, disappointed that you don't have an answer to replace this hypothesis? Well... I would like to have another 40 years. I rather suspect the good God's not going to give it to me. (laughs) Perhaps because I'm an atheist, (laughs) like most biologists have sensed. Well, Professor, thank you for coming by. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Paul Colinvo is Senior Research Scientist at Marine Biological Laboratory at Woods Hole and Professor Emeritus at The Ohio State University. His new book is called Amazon Expeditions, My Quest for the Ice Age Equator. On the next Living on Earth, emergency room doctors in Alaska are on alert as global warming creates a hospitable climate for harmful insects. We experienced our first two deaths in Alaska from yellow jacket stings in 2006. And when we started looking at this, we found that there was about a tenfold increase in the number of yellow jackets in Fairbanks. Insects, allergies, and climate change, next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young with help from Jennifer Basler and Sarah Hawkins. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Rosano. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, 
Socially and Environmentally Sustainable Investing, PaxWorld, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.